And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I'm Archie Hall, a writer from London and Hong Kong, and I recently published a piece in Persuasion entitled Goodbye to Hong Kong, the city's time as an open and liberal society has run out. In the piece, I covered the dispiriting past year that Hong Kong has had. Since the summer of 2020, when the Hong Kong government passed a draconian national security law, Hong Kong's freedoms have been dramatically eroded. Although at the time, Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, promised that citizens would continue to enjoy freedom of speech, a free press, free assembly, and much more, today, most pro-democracy politicians languish in prison. The last major pro-democracy newspaper has been forcibly shuttered, and pro-democracy advocates that I spoke to for the piece told me that prognosis remains grim. Faced with these dire facts, more and more Hong Kongers are choosing to emigrate. The British Home Office estimates that around 300,000 Hong Kongers are likely to emigrate to the UK alone in the next five years. Those arriving face not just the standard challenges of difficulties adapting to a new society or finding jobs and school places for their children, but also intimidation from Chinese government actors and trauma from the process that racked their city for the past two years. But as Hong Kong's freedoms have eroded, the legacy these migrants take with them will become ever more important. Because beneath the political fight in Hong Kong, the cultural stakes have always been crucially, crucially vital. Hong Kong's danger to the mainland lay not just in its restive population, but in what Hong Kong embodied, an authentically Chinese vision of liberal politics, a part of China that didn't owe its wealth or its modernity to the Conservative Party, a forcefully Cantonese rejoinder to any aspirations in Beijing that China should be culturally or linguistically homogenous. But those ideals today aren't best represented by Hong Kong the city, but rather Hong Kong as the people, wherever they reside. Archie Hall's piece called Goodbye to Hong Kong was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Adrian Wooldridge. Adrian is the political editor of The Economist as well as its Badger columnist. He has a new book that lies close to my interests called The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. It is very interesting because it has critical notes about the meritocratic ethos of parts of the elite, the way in which they think that their qualifications somehow make them better to the rest of society. But at the same time, he is also a defender of the ideal of meritocracy, showing how important it has been to innovation and economic growth throughout history and how dangerous it is that parts of the West now appear to be retreating from meritocracy. It's a lively, really interesting conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it. Adrian Wooldridge, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're in a strange moment, I think, in the conversation about meritocracy, where it's become very, very fashionable to attack meritocracy. There's been a spate of books saying meritocracy is a problem. I had Michael Sindel on to discuss his book about that about a year ago on the podcast. What do you want to contribute to that conversation? Well, first of all, I think that the notion that meritocracy is a problem is actually a very old sort of notion. The term meritocracy was invented by Michael Young in 1958 with his book, The Rise of the Meritocracy. And that was meant to be a critique of meritocracy. It was saying that meritocracy is an absolutely awful system because it makes the people who win feel horribly smug and it makes the people who lose feel unbearably depressed. So there's always been an element in the idea of meritocracy, which has been a critique rather than a celebration. Nevertheless, when Michael Young's book came out, it was interpreted by everybody, much to his chagrin, as actually a celebration of this change. And most of us, I think, for most of the last 40 or 50 years, have thought of meritocracy as a good thing, that it enshrines open competition, fair competition, the idea of treating everybody according to the same standards, getting rid of favoritism and the rest of it, and creating a more efficient society. But what we have actually seen in the last few years is a real darkening. In other words, people right across the board have woken up to the negative side of what Michael Young was saying, and say, actually, meritocracy is not a very good thing. And this goes all the way from Black Lives Matter, who are very critical of meritocracy, to academics like 
Markovitz and Sandel, who are sitting at the very heart of the meritocratic machine and saying this isn't a very nice thing either. So I think now, I think the onus at the very least is to say, you know, this is an idea that's central to the creation of our civilization. Are we right to get rid of it or should we be very careful in getting rid of it? And I am on the side of saying we should be very, very careful about getting rid of it. It was because I was a bit worried about how easily we were denigrating meritocracy that I decided to write this book looking at the history of meritocracy and looking at what it actually meant in practice. And I think that we've been very casual with democracy, very casual with capitalism, very willing to be hypercritical of those two things. And I think we've, certainly in the case of democracy, we've seen the dark side of criticising it. I think we're about to see the dark side of criticising meritocracy as well. Yeah, one of the things that strikes me in this conversation is that there's sometimes a sort of confusion of terms. So I grant that Michael Sandel's book, for example, has important insight about the darker sides of a meritocratic ethic. But there are people who get to Harvard where he teaches and then go out and make a lot of money who think of themselves as the masters of the universe and think that they deserve all of their good fortune and everybody else deserves all of the bad fortune they might have. There's certainly very ugly elements to a ruling elite that not only does it create the wealth of themselves, but also think that they perhaps don't have much responsibility to the rest of society. But that then sometimes is used to discredit an idea that seems to me to be actually be much older, and my, older than Michael Young's term of meritocracy, which is the importance of merit, the importance of careers that are open to the talents, the importance of promoting those who will perform the best into society's most important positions. And that seems to me to be something that's deeply bound up with the history of liberalism and the history of modern states. It seems to stand at the heart, for example, of the French Revolution. So I know you fought very hard about the history of meritocracy. How do you think that can help us think about where we are at in the conversation today? Well, the most important thing about the book that I wrote was that it is a history. And I think you have to grasp the history in order to understand the nature of the meritocratic idea. And the meritocratic idea is essentially a critique of a particular sort of society, which is a sort of society which existed in most of the world throughout most of history. And that is a society which is ordered according to the principles of inheritance, that you inherit your position from your parents, the principle of family connection, that families do their very, very best to get their children or their cousins or their people in their affinity group jobs, or even that positions are bought and sold on the open market. That's most of human history. And I think it's not just most of human history, but it's actually something that is profoundly tied up with human nature, that if we don't construct a bunch of institutions which constrain our behaviour, we end up not with meritocracy, but with nepotism, with corruption in various sorts, because people have a natural desire to help their own children, and people have a natural desire to sort of break the rules, say, well, just let's just change the rules a bit for me and my interests. So meritocracy was a real creation that took time to create, and that took a certain self-denying ordinance. We were pushing against some of the most obvious things about human nature. So I said that, you know, meritocracy has a relatively brief history in the sense that it's the creation of the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and of what I call the English Revolution, the Gladstonian Revolution of the 19th century, all of which were taking the old social order and tearing it up and saying, let's reconstitute the social order on the basis of a set of new principles, open competition, testing people's promise and ability, getting rid of nepotism, getting rid of feudal restrictions. And I think that has a fundamental importance for the way we organise the world today for this reason, because meritocracy is a revolutionary principle that continues to be a revolutionary principle. It's a principle that, if you look at it and interpret it properly, is always dissolving inherited aristocracies and is always creating room for mobility and always creating room for marginalised groups so rather than being the sort of the tool of oppression or the tool of class power that Sandel or Markovich or, or Michael Young think of it, I think if you go to its essence, its historical essence, you find an extremely radical idea. Just as if you go to the essence of liberalism, you find something that's actually a fundamentally radical and permanently radical idea. I'm somebody who spent a lot of time in Italy. Now, Italy, by comparison to most societies in the history of the world, 
is very meritocratic society. Nearly every developed democracy today is very meritocratic compared to what the world looked like in most places for most of our species' existence. But a lot of young people there do not have a feeling that if they do very well in high school, they'll get into the best college and they have a degree from one of the best colleges, they'll have a lot of opportunity to pursue their dreams and so on. They have the sense that the person who gets the job is il raccomandato, and that's not the person with the best letter of reference, it's the person with the cousin who has power, who has an in. What do you think the impact today would be of following the advice of Michael Sindel and Markowitz? What do you think would happen if meritocracy actually atrophies in the United Kingdom or the United States or in continental Europe? Well, I think a lot of the answer is actually Italy, that it's very, very easy to get rid of meritocracy. And I don't think meritocracy is got rid of in the, in the sense that you abolish it, you get rid of it. What you do is you allow it to weaken, you allow it to atrophy, you allow, oh, let's make an exception for my nephew, let's make an exception for his nephew. You have lots of little exceptions that seem unimportant at the time, but when they mount up, they mount up to a much more nepotistic, a much more familial sort of social system. And I think there are two problems with Italy, if you think about it. One is a problem of economic efficiency, that it's just not a very dynamic economy, and it's becoming less and less dynamic. So if you look at the years after the Second World War, Italy did all right at first. It did all right when family companies could you know, bring in their nephew and still work rather well. But since the 1990s, when IT has been much more important as the key to growth, Italy has fallen further and further and further apart. So the price of having a nepotistic economy is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we have a more information technology-driven society. So Italy is, I think, a stagnant society. But also, I think you have an unjust society in the sense that people are not judged on the basis of their talents and ambitions. They're judged on the basis of their family. I think that's unjust. But they're also, people are not allowed to express their talents. So they become very frustrated. They're living in their parents' bedroom and the rest of it and not expressing their talents. I think that's unjust as well. I think not taking people's talents as defining parts of their character is unjust. So if you look at the history of migration, migration is almost always, I would say probably always, I'd venture to say always, away from closed, nepotistic familial-based societies towards more open, towards more meritocratic societies. So you have this massive flow of people from Greece, massive flow of people from Italy, towards places like Britain and the United States, which are further advanced on the meritocratic curve. So I think the future is Italy if we go down the Sandel route. It's interesting to try to enumerate the harms from a lack of meritocracy. You mentioned inefficiency, the fact that when the most talented people don't, in fact, inhabit the most important positions or when people don't have a reason to study very hard in order to be as good as they can be in those positions, that has very negative impacts on economic growth and other kinds of goods that we might want. I mean, we can think of the economic opportunities that Germany, thank God, allowed to Turkish-German immigrants that allowed us to have Pfizer vaccine. If they hadn't been able to rise through the ranks of society, that would have had a very significant impact on our ability to deal with the pandemic this year. That's a very strong example of that. You talk about the injustice of people feeling like, well, my station in life is fixed and it is what it is. And I may have all this talent. I'm never going to be able to use it. I'm speculating here. I'm trying to think through it. I wonder whether there's also a more perfectionist account that may actually even appeal to some of the critics of meritocracy if they take it seriously, which is one of human flourishing and human development. One of the things that strikes me is that when I really started spending a lot of time in Italy, I was at college in your country, in England, I was at Cambridge, and I was very impressed with the people I went to university with. They were smart and hardworking, but I was also really impressed with the people I met in my village in Italy who had not gone to university, some of whom had not finished high school and who were interesting, smart, thoughtful people. But over the next years and decades, they had so many fewer opportunities than the people I knew. They knew that when they worked hard at something, it was so much less likely to actually result in outcomes, that they didn't develop their talents and they didn't develop their faculties in the same kind of way. And it pains me to say, but I think they're leading lives that are less full, that actually having a society that allows people to pursue talents and gain rewards for them is also a way of allowing a fuller human flourishing. I wonder if that's a third kind of badness of a lack of meritocracy. Absolutely. I think, you know, that's justice in the sort of broader sense of the term. I think if you're going to take people seriously, 
as human beings, you have to take their talents seriously. You have to take into account the fact that they're people who have potential and who can develop that potential and who are at their most fulfilled when they are expressing that potential, when they're developing and expressing that. So I think a good society is a society which puts the development of talent at the very heart of it. And in order to develop your talent, you have to be willing to test your talent. And I think there's a lot of criticism by the anti-meritocratic people about you know, the terrible examination system, everybody spending a life doing examinations. Most of us don't like doing examinations, but doing examinations is also a way of developing our talents because we have to work, we have to master a body of material. And it's also a way of testing our talents against other people, against other abilities, a way, as it were, of providing yourself and the world with information about something that's very important about you. So I think many of the things that people find not so nice about meritocracy, this sorting process, this examination process, also has a brighter side. And the brighter side is developing talents which could easily remain undeveloped or hidden and which also become integral to their identities. So if we think of a sort of Rousseauian world in which we have a primitive state of nature in which we're allowed to be free. That strikes me as a world that ultimately, it's not quite the Italian village, but it's slightly a world in which people don't develop themselves as human beings in quite the same way as they would if they were subjected to a meritocratic calculus. And I raised the question of Rousseau here because Rousseau actually developed some of the earliest and best critiques of meritocracy. Because he says, well, if you have a meritocratic world, you have a world in which people are constantly striving for fame striving to assert themselves in a competitive marketplace for fame and status, and in which a tiny number of them will succeed, but most of them will fail. I would say against that, that this very process of striving to prove yourself in this competitive status-oriented marketplace is part of the process both of developing your talents and of discovering your talents. So I'm in the opposite side of the noble savage debate from Rousseau here. The strongest criticism that I think of meritocracy is not that there's something bad about meritocracy in itself. It is that our society is not, in fact, meritocratic. What do you think about the point that when you look at rates of social mobility, when you look at how well your parents' educational status predicts, what kind of education you're likely to achieve, how well your parents' income predicts, what kind of income you're likely to achieve, the real problem in our society is that meritocracy is a myth that it's a nice way of sanctifying the ruling class, but it's not, in fact, the mechanism that determines who rules. And if that is true, what's the implication of that? The critics of meritocracy say, well, this is all a myth, so let's give up on the myth. I take it that your point of view, and probably mine, is to say, well, insofar as we're failing to live up to the ideal of meritocracy, and surely we are to some extent failing to live up to it, let's reform our institutions so that we live up to it more fully. We clearly agree on that. But I think, you know, if we step back and look at the broad sweep of history, we do, in fact, live in a meritocracy as compared with most previous other societies. We formally have open competition. We formally frown on, indeed, don't allow by law, all sorts of practices which were very common in society in the 19th century. And we do have a system whereby, in many ways, the most important asset that you can have is brain power, whereas there was, you know, 18th century, being a landed gentleman was what mattered, inherited landed estates. Now, you know, if you have a high IQ, you're likely to be very successful in life. But I do think that we have a sort of degenerate form of meritocracy, or what I call in my book, a sort of Pluto meritocracy, a sort of marriage between plutocracy and meritocracy which almost has the worst characteristics of both things, in which everybody starts off by thinking that they deserve their positions. They're like George H.W. Bush, who classically, you know, was born at third base and thought he'd hit a triple. You know, that seems to be what has happened in the whole of society. But in fact, there are all sorts of privileges which are transmitted in very subtle ways, which ensure that the privileged continue to have their privilege. And these are that people buy education. So in Britain, going to a private school is very important in the United States also, to some extent, not quite as clearly as in Britain, but significant. Well, in America, to cut in for a moment, a lot of the thing that happens is that people buy homes in nice affluent neighbourhoods and then they go to 
public schools in the American sense, schools that are tax-funded, but they are tax-funded by the rich taxpayers within a small school district. So you either go to Sidwell Friends, as Obama's children went to, or you move out to a nice suburb and go to the equivalent of a private school, which is state-funded. You've also got a sort of mating, whereby educationally privileged people marry other educationally privileged people and invest huge resources in their children. And you're getting the sort of globalisation of merit. You're getting these global institutions like academic institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, which, you know, which are all populated by people who seem to circulate around, marry each other and live in this sort of global world floating above the rest of us. So this alliance between plutocracy and meritocracy, I think, is producing a sort of quasi-meritocratic elite who transmit their privileges to their children extremely efficiently and who can defend themselves against challenges from subordinate groups very effectively. And social mobility is getting much harder. So in Britain, for example, we used to have a system of selective education monitored by IQ tests called grammar schools, which did lead to a period of much more social mobility. Those schools were abolished at the same time that the private schools were left intact. So you had these private schools, you know, without a challenger effectively when the grammar schools went in in terms of getting people into elite institutions. So my belief is there's nothing wrong with meritocracy that more meritocracy can't solve, to put it very simply. In other words, the way to break this calcification of the current system is to have more academic selection, more use of objective tests like IQ tests, more early education to make sure that people who are born into less privileged backgrounds can have the access to the bottom rungs of the ladder and more sort of ladder construction, I think. And one of the things that most worries me is that a lot of the things that appear to be egalitarian actually have the paradoxical effect of entrenching the power of the elites. And if I were a cynic, I would say that that's also true of all these books emanating from Ivy League universities, which might sound terribly radical, but you know, in my opinion, will probably actually make these Ivy League universities even more oligarchical than they are already. Explain to me this very interesting point about how reforms that are supposed to make the educational system or the career system as a whole more egalitarian, in fact, make it less so. I think there's some reforms that I think actually are an important step towards opening people's opportunities. So, for example, there's a movement within publishing to abolish unpaid internships. I think that is very, very clearly a good way of opening those careers because that's just a financial obstacle for people from less privileged backgrounds to pursue these careers that can be very rewarding, but in the long run may make you decent money, but that at the opening steps normally are very difficult to afford if you don't have financial resources. So that I think clearly there's some good steps in that direction. Perhaps on the other end of the ledger, there might be something like the school district in San Diego that found that African-American students underperformed academically according to the grades in the system. And so they decided that the grading system must be unjust or racist, and they abolished the grading system. That perhaps could be a step that actually makes it harder to identify the most talented African-American students within the system and harder to ensure that they get the opportunities that they might end up going to a selective university and so on. What are some other examples where steps that are supposed to boost equality, you worry, in fact, undermine equality? The most obvious example of this is what happened in England, when we used to, in England, have a system called the 11 plus, which divided children between grammar school children and secondary modern school children at the age of 11 on the basis of an 11 plus examination, which was essentially or essentially became an IQ test. And this was a very brutal thing. And it was abolished on the grounds that it was cruel and divisive and replaced with comprehensive schools. But the problem with comprehensive schools is comprehensive schools really represent selection by postcode. If you're brought up in a leafy suburb, you go to a leafy suburb school and you spend your time with other children from the same sort of background. So strangely enough, comprehensive schools aren't as good as sort of mixing the classes together as systems which select people on the basis of just performance in IQ tests. So it was a very well-intentioned thing, but what you got after the 11 plus was abolished was a decline in the number of people coming from working class backgrounds going on into elite institutions like Oxford and Cambridge on the basis of their performance in these exams. Another extended version of this is what we've tended to do 
over the last few years is because we don't like selecting people, because selecting people means eliminating people. We've made education longer and longer and longer and longer. So it's become a sort of endurance test. You don't just have to do BAs, you have to do MAs, you have to do PhDs, you have to do double doctorates in Germany or France or the rest of it, and then you have to do internships. So you spend a long time going through the system, and that's because we don't like to eliminate people. In the past, you know, if you got past the 11 plus, got into a good grammar school, got into Oxford, got a first, you'd be finished by the time you were 20, and your first would guarantee you a very good job. And you'd be starting work at the age of 20 or 21. Now, it's taking much, much longer. And we do that because we want to be fair to people. We don't want to eliminate people. We want to be just to people. We want to give them second chances. But the sort of the paradoxical result of this is that actually it's good for the rich. Because the rich can stay in the system and do the unpaid internship and do the unpaid internship in New York. I mean, who lives in New York? You know, either very poor people or very rich people. So where all these jobs are to do an unpaid internship in New York, you have to have rich parents. That's the only way it can work. So by being kind, we can actually lower rates of social mobility. And I think we've done that. The other thing, talking about what's going on now, you are seeing in Lowell High School in San Francisco, in Boston, Latin, schools which have been incredibly successful at getting poor people into the elite, particularly the poor children of immigrants into the elite, replacing selection by examination of a scholastic test with a lottery. Now, it strikes me that to do something on the basis of a lottery is crazy because a lottery cannot reveal what you're looking for in education, which is academic promise or academic ability. Yeah, and it is striking that a lot of students at those schools really do come from poor backgrounds, often from Asian-American immigrant parents. You're also interested in the competition between different societies along meritocratic lines. In history, you're saying that you nearly always get migration from closed societies that don't give a lot of opportunity to the talented, to societies that give a relatively higher modicum of opportunities. And it has often been the societies that attracted talent and that gave them opportunities that ended up outcompeting other countries. When you look at the world today, do you worry that countries in Asia, but particularly China, are giving greater opportunities to their most talented people and instituting a system of meritocracy that may have a potential of outcompeting Britain or the United States or other Western democracies? Absolutely. We talked at the start of this podcast about the history of meritocracy. And I said that it's a relatively brief history in the sense that meritocratic societies were the product of these revolutions, French, American, and English revolutions. But of course, the first broadly meritocratic system of society was actually introduced by the Chinese, who introduced it in the equivalent of the early Middle Ages. And they basically created a statewide examination system, which selected people on the basis of their scholastic skills to rule the empire. And this started very, very early on. So let's say in the ninth century, when Britain was ruled by people with names like Eric Bloodaxe, China was ruled by people who passed these scholastic examinations. And this system at its height was testing about 10% of the population. So, you know, it's extraordinarily deeply rooted in Chinese civilization. However, it was a very atrophied system because it was only focused on examinations in the Confucian classics. So eventually that system broke down. In 1905, I think you abolished the examination system. Then you go through a series of problems culminating in the Cultural Revolution, which is egalitarianism in its most brutal and extreme form. But what's happening in China now is that they're beginning to reconstitute this meritocratic Mandarin examination regulated state on a massive, massive scale. But this time, what they're selecting for is not your knowledge of the Confucian classics, but your knowledge of science, engineering, biochemistry, mathematics, and the rest of it. So they're creating a new super scientific technological engineering elite. So the West managed to compete against China when China was looking only for Confucian scholars. But if China is now looking for a much broader range of abilities, particularly focused on the science, and if, as I think we've demonstrated earlier on, the West is cooling on meritocracy and beginning to dismantle some of the fundamental building blocks of meritocracy, that raises the possibility that China will own the future, not the West. And if you look at Singapore, 
I think you will be very, very worried about the trajectory of the West versus the East, because Singapore has pioneered this ultra-meritocratic model, and Singapore has gone from 1960, when it was you know, one of the poorest countries in the world, poorer than Sri Lanka, poorer than many African countries, now to one of the richest countries in the world. So if China can do what Singapore has done at a time when America is dismantling all of these structures, I think we face beyond doubt a China-dominated century. Let me challenge you on the state of China for a moment. It seems to me that there's two complicated things coexisting in China, so that there is complicated things coexisting within the United States or Britain. So on the one hand, you do have this very long tradition of selective examinations, and you have clearly a deeply rooted culture of educational achievement and aspiration, a desire for social mobility, which I think in some ways is more intense than it is in countries that have been affluent for longer. On the other hand, of course, you do still have a reasonably sclerotic part of the economic system in which the success of particular companies depends on connections to a political party, in which there is certainly a lot of nepotism at the top, as we can see in the political leadership, but also in the economic elite. So how fully a meritocracy is China? And as the country appears to be becoming, in some ways, more firmly controlled uh, by the Communist Party, how sure are we that the Chinese trajectory will be towards more meritocracy rather than less? I'm certainly not sure. And there are all sorts of problems with my arguments. The problem of nepotism, the problem of rich people buying opportunities for their children, the problem of the fact that opportunities are skewed massively towards the urban centres and away from the countryside. But the figures I've seen suggest that access to the top universities is less class biased in China than it is in the United States. You know, we have these figures from Harvard saying that the number of people who come from the top 2% of the income stream take up more than 50% of places. I think it's smaller in the elite Chinese universities. The Communist Party is making a very, very determined attempt to recruit the sort of the intellectual elites and the entrepreneurs into its ranks, not just people who can recite the right slogans. They have a sense that in order to remain the leading cadre, they have to be clever about it. I'm not absolutely certain that China won't degenerate, but what I am certain of is that we shouldn't underestimate our potential opponent. That would be very, very foolish. And if you look at Singapore, which in many ways is the model that the more intelligent parts of the Chinese elite have taken, Singapore has done a very, very good job of remaining very meritocratic and not giving way to corruption in the way that so many other countries in that region. I mean, levels of corruption, there is corruption, but it's not high by the standards of many, many other countries. And it is doing a very, very good job of subjecting its ruling class to a very pressurised system. And it seems that you can't both argue that this is a very sclerotic system in which the elites are buying everything that they can and that there's this enormous pressure to achieve and that people are sort of breaking down because they're having so much competition. You know, if you go to China, you don't get the impression of a society that's just run by corruption. You get the impression of a society that is bent upon educational and intellectual achievement. Well, I think in a vast country with rapid economic growth, those two things can, in fact, coexist. You can have significant corruption, significant nepotism, and you also can have a feeling among the bulk of the population that if I work really hard and I'm talented, I have every opportunity of succeeding. And it seems to me that at the moment, those two things probably exist at the same time. They do, and it could go in any direction. I don't want to be naive about China. But again, as I say, I don't want to underestimate it. And I do think there's a formula. We've tended to think in the West that the key to our economic dynamism is democracy, the fact that we're democracies. I'm not sure that that's true. I think the key to a lot of our economic dynamism performance has been meritocracy rather than democracy. Democracy is great, but it's not the same as meritocracy. And I think that meritocracy can be aligned to democracy. It's like a machine that can be used by democracy to make themselves rich, but it could also be aligned to autocracy and be used by autocracies to make themselves rich. So what worries me is that this thing, meritocracy, might be abandoned by democratic societies and taken up by autocratic societies. It can go in either direction. That's interesting. I haven't spent much time thinking through the exact relationship between democracy and meritocracy. I'd love to double-click on that for a moment. So I suppose one hypothesis that comes to my mind is that democracy, to some extent, can be a guarantor 
of meritocracy. Now, of course, there's many democracies where that's not the case. There's many democracies where actually you end up buying votes through clientelism, through the promise of giving everybody jobs. You know, if you vote for them, and that's precisely the opposite of meritocracy, the person who gets the job as the street sweeper in some provincial town, maybe because they're the nephew of the very local political boss in some small housing district and so on and so forth. But democracy can go hand in hand with a deeply anti-meritocratic system. On the other hand, I suppose that in a society where there's a norm of meritocracy, the ability to throw out the ruling elites can be a way of punishing them for extreme forms of nepotism. And you've seen some democratic rebellions against forms of nepotism, most famously, I think, in South Korea a few years ago, where there was very, very deep popular outrage when it was found that the president had favored her daughter, I believe, in some complicated ways, perhaps the daughter of a spiritual advisor, to get into one of the top universities in the country. Interesting that that too was in an Asian culture where a sort of pro-meritocratic populist rebellion against a sitting president ousted them. Very interesting, I think. I'm trying to think of how it might work the other way around. I mean, in what ways does meritocracy potentially prop up democracy or undermine democracy? What's the relationship there. I think it is very best. Meritocracy is good for democracy because the worst thing for democracy is, as it were, too much democracy, too much people's power. Democracy works best when there's a creative mixture between pure people power and institutions which restrict people's power. So the classic example of this is the American Constitution. The American Constitution said, well, we must have the House of Representatives, which is close to the people, which has votes every two years, which is hot, as it were, and close to the populace. But we must also qualify that with other forms of popular representation and meritocratic institutions. So you have the Senate elected every six years and the Supreme Court, which is very deliberately not elected. So this business of mixing pure democratic institutions with meritocratic institutions has actually haunted a great many liberal thinkers. If you think of John Stuart Mill said, democracy is a wonderful thing. It's so wonderful that the elite must have more of it, as it were. So you have two votes for the educated, or three votes or 10 votes. Hayek had the notion that you should have a second chamber of wise men. So I think any serious Democrats would not be worried about having filters or constraints on the will of the people to put in longer term perspectives to enshrine some role for, let's say, Supreme Court justices who have an expertise in the law or something like that. So most democratic institutions do involve a meritocratic element. So here's where I become perhaps a little bit skeptical and where it seems to me that in some of your other work, you actually start having areas of overlap of the critics of meritocracy, which is that there's a version of how to think about meritocracy and democracy where you say, look, not only do we need a society in which we make sure that the students at the best universities and the people running the most important companies and the people at the head of our political and civic institutions are talented people and that everybody has a chance to inhabit those positions. That is a position which I'm 100% on board with. But there's also a vision of society where you say, well, and then it turns out that there's these people who are better educated, who are smarter, who are more talented, who are expert, and we should defer to them across a broad range of social and political issues. When a pandemic hits, the people who make decisions about this or even talk about this in public should all be epidemiologists because they are the experts who really know and everybody else should shut up. You know, on a question about, for example, whether the United Kingdom should be a member of the European Union, that is a question for economic experts to decide, and we should let them have at it. Now, I'm somewhat sympathetic to some of those positions. I think epidemiologists have an important role to play in helping us think through a pandemic, and I broadly agreed with the economic assessment that leaving the European Union was an economic mistake for the United Kingdom. Um, but there is, I think, for some good reason, a real rebellion against that in our politics at the moment. As Michael Gove famously said, the people are sick of experts in the context of Brexit. And as it turns out, the experts got many, many important things wrong during the pandemic. So, you know, how do we have a meritocracy without the kind of deference for credentialed elites who often look after their own material self-interest, who often have political views that are conditioned by the kinds of areas and cities they live in, 
how do we make sure that our respect for talent doesn't turn into the rule of distant political elite? Let me say that I'm deeply ambivalent about this, or to use a less flattering phrase, somewhat self-contradictory about this. Because on the one hand, I see the elites as this platonic guardian class who have all of these virtues. And then on the other hand, I look at them in the real world who say, well, aren't these a bunch of awful snobs who think they're right and look down on the rest of the population, not just because they're clever in the rest of the population, but because they have completely different experiences from the rest of the population. So I can see why there is this populist revolt against meritocracy or Pluto meritocracy, as I tend to call it. And I think there is some justice in this revolt because you have a group of people who are not just experts and not just chosen on the basis of their educational credentials, or they may be those things, but also have a certain experience of the world that makes them deeply prejudiced and deeply biased. So I remember, you know, the laborious debate that we had in Britain about leaving the EU, and it was quite noticeable that the elites who didn't want to leave the EU came from a certain set of backgrounds, had a certain set of attitudes, and were quite obvious and very openly contemptuous of the rest of the country. And that did indicate to me that the country got very out of whack and that what we saw with Brexit was an appeal by people who'd been ignored, not to be ignored anymore. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. So the populist revolt against meritocracy, certainly in the form that it took in Brexit, I don't know we're going to Trump, that's even more complicated, had a certain merit, had a certain value to it. I think that the way to deal with that, however, is not to get rid of the meritocratic idea as a guiding principle, but to modify it in certain ways. Partly, I think, to make sure that it works in the sense that we've had a sort of marriage between merit and plutocracy, which means that a certain privileged class keeps perpetuating itself. And I think we need to renew the meritocracy by having much more social mobility. And I think the way to do that is to reconstitute the educational system to make it a bit more selective, make much more use of tests, make sure that the elite is really representative of ability in the population and wherever it is, regionally and class-wise. So if you have more social mobility, that's a good thing. But I also argue in my book that we need to have a certain return to Victorianism in the sense that what happened in the middle of the Victorian era in Britain, I'm thinking of, you had a very self-indulgent aristocratic elite that was then subjected to open competition, but it was also told not just that it should seize jobs on the basis of open competition, but also that if you get those jobs, you have a duty to the rest of society to do what's good for society. So you had a cult of public service. And I think what we've done in the last few years is to lose this sense of public service, partly because of Thatcherism, quite frankly, and a sort of sense that the elite who are clever should just go for it. They should accumulate as much wealth as they can because they deserve it. You know, remember that disgusting, appalling advertisement, because you're worth it. This sort of because you're worth it is crucial to the new elite. And it's maybe a deformation of meritocracy, but I think there needs to be some sort of sense. It's not because you're worth it. If you're born clever and if you're hardworking, it almost multiplies your commitment to the rest of society. So I think, you know, during the Brexit debate, there was a sort of arrogance about the elite, which was deeply, deeply disturbing, and which has made me rethink a lot of what I believed about that Brexit debate anyway. So you have two propositions, I think, and it makes a fitting end to the podcast to talk through both of those. So the first prescription you have is to say, well, let's actually make our system more meritocratic. Let's reintroduce exams, etc. Tell us a little bit more about what that might mean. I mean, if we get on board with this argument, if we say, Meritocracy is the right ideal. It's just, it also is the best way that we can compete with authoritarian challenges around the world. Let us double down on the meritocratic elements of our political systems. What would that look like in Britain, in the United States, and other Western democracy? What kind of reform do we need? I think of Michael Sandel's critique of Harvard, for example, as being terribly too meritocratic. In fact, I think that the number of places in Harvard that you get on the basis of non-hooks just on the basis of pure academic merit rather than athletic things or whether your parents went to Harvard or all the rest, is about 20%. So one thing you could do is make it 100% by getting rid of all these athletic scholarships, getting rid of the privileges given to legacies. So I think you'd have 
a much purer admission. As a very quick side note, if I may cut in, I remember sitting in a Harvard faculty room and listening to the then, I believe it was a student dean, telling us about how they wanted to shape the undergraduate class going forward and saying a remarkable thing, which was roughly, I don't have notes on this, and it's a good number of years ago, you know, look, we know that 10% of our students are super intellectual and academic. You know, they're going to be taking the courses seriously. No matter the context, they would do that even at a party university somewhere. And we know that 10% of our students, this is not in academics at all, and they're never going to be paying particular attention to the courses, you know, even if they were at the most intellectual university. I mean, 80% of the students, you know, they could really go either way and it doesn't really matter to them. And so, you know, we need to just change the atmosphere a little bit so that they take academics and the courses a little bit more seriously. And I found myself thinking, well, first of all, why do you admit those 10% that you think are never going to take the courses seriously? Secondly, why did you try to admit many more of the first 10% who you say are actually really intellectually engaged? If you feel like you can identify those students before you admit them, why on earth is the supposedly best university in the world only choosing to admit them to 10% of a spot in its student body. Now, that doesn't mean that I think the admissions criteria for Harvard should be whoever is most likely to become a university professor. I think there's many other more important positions in society that Harvard should train people for and prepare people for. But it does seem to me to indicate a fundamental misunderstanding of what the purpose of a university should be, how its resources are best used, who would most profit from membership in that class, from access to these scarce resources, in a way that's, that's quite telling about the overall system. Sorry for that interjection. No, 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 you're absolutely right. I find it absolutely extraordinary, that attitude. And also I find it slightly extraordinary, that the fear that if you have too many really bright people, you'll have too many people who want to become professors. In my experience, most of the brightest people I know do not want to become professors. There are so many bigger rewards in the world than being a professor that people are attracted to. But the most obvious result of removing all these hooks at Harvard would be a very significant increase in the number of Asian students who are discriminated against massively now in the same way that Jews were once discriminated against. And secondly, a very significant drop in the number of the old precision white ruling class who get in because their parents went and because they're good at polo or rowing or all of these sort of elite sort of sports. But I would more generally have an emphasis on what used to be called sort of education priority areas where you would take areas and enrich education for younger children. Because I think, you know, a lot of this starts at a very younger age. I would use various technological techniques to encourage people to talk much more to their children, which has been done in Rhode Island. One of the big differences between privileged and non-privileged children is the number of words they hear. And parents from less privileged backgrounds who are told to talk more, you know, encouraged to talk more to their children, they've tried experiments with this in Red Iron and encouraged to do that, do do that because everybody's ambitious for their children apart from a tiny number of sociopaths. And when they're encouraged to do that, they do tend to do that. So have a range of interventions for younger children, have more use of objective tests, SAT tests and IQ tests, more IQ tests than SATs, and have lots of academically specialised schools, you know, and I'd almost approach looking for hidden Einsteins with the same obsession that America approaches looking for talented football players or basketball players, you know, have people who look around. And I think technology, again, could be used to search. I think in Israel, there's an elite division called, I think, 8021, which actually monitors the performance of people who are playing video games, and it finds that there are lots of people who do incredibly good at video games who don't go to school or aren't very interested in school. Or, but these people, in order to get these sort of incredible scores in these video arcades, be incredibly bright, then they get these people and say, no, you're going to go into this elite division and we will look for you. So use a whole range of things to search for talent because it is an incredibly precious thing as well as having more academically focused schools. So I think if we put a real effort into this, as we did, after the Second World War, as America did, after Sputnik in particular. And if we use the full power of big data, modern technology to look for talent, there could be a revolution in the supply of talent available to the country. So all of this is going to be hard to do and hard to find a political will for, but it in principle seems very feasible. None of what you're talking about seems in any way outlandish. And I can see where the social levers are that you need to pull in order to make it happen. Let's get to your second idea, which is, I think, more challenging, which is how do you re-imbue 
a sense of responsibility, a sense of not noblesse oblige, but les talents oblige within the meritocratic elite? How do we make sure that the ruling ethos of a meritocratic elite is not, I deserve this, I'm worth it, but, you know, thanks to hard work and thanks to talent, I've been given these wonderful opportunities, I better use them to give back. Well, first of all, I think it can be demonstrated that it can be done by looking at history. And the best historical example I can think of is what happened in Britain, which notoriously had one of the most self-indulgent ruling classes in the world up to, let's say, about 1850, a ruling class that was characterized by corruption, nepotism, drunkenness, mad, bad and dangerous to know, and the rest of it. And 20 years later, you had had a complete revolution whereby you had created the most honest civil service in the world and the public service ethos, which sent generations of people out to the slums to do social work and things like that. That was a huge moral revival, which changed the nature of the country. So it's not impossible to do it and not impossible to do it relatively quickly. And I wonder if we have many of the materials to do it now. And I think about the woke revolution. Now, I'm not a wokeist, and many things about the woke revolution disturb me. But there is a sense there of guilt and atonement on the part of the elite and a sense that they perhaps have their privileges because other people don't and that they owe something to society. So there is a sort of moral reformation. I think it can be a self-indulgent and destructive moral reformation. But nevertheless, I think we've gone a bit beyond because you're worth it towards some sort of sense of giving back more to society. And I think people who are you know, broadly critical of that revolution like me should recognise there are some good motives there. I just wish it took a slightly different form in the sense of being less obsessed by group rights and more willing to lift up the whole of society rather than make retribution for certain classic wrongs. So it's a matter of channeling the sense of responsibility for social well-being and the sense of guilt at the privileges one enjoys into a more productive channel. Yes, absolutely. In my belief. Yes, in my view. Adrian Wildrich, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It was very enjoyable. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.